But it's, uh, it's always a joy to see a Providence family and, um, and uh, all of those who are guests uh, here with us. We're thrilled that you've joined us as well. Whether you're in the room or at home, we're glad that you joined us and pray this time will be encouraging to you. If you have with you a Bible, if you want to look with me at Colossians chapter 1 and few moments, uh, we're going to read, uh, starting in verse 9, we're in a series uh, through this book, which is just absolutely fascinating about how we grow rooted in Christ. And as we grow rooted in Christ, what happens is that we find a resource to live in a different kind of way. And I hope to be able to show you how important that is for the rest of your life, that if you could tap into resources that were not your own, like a, like, like a pool of patience and endurance and kindness and wisdom that was deeper and wider than anything you could ever come up with on your own. Just what that would do for your life and for your relationships and, and, and for your hope, to be honest. Um, and so I hope this, uh, this will be really in, um, just very helpful to you. Uh, if you are new here uh, or if you've been here a long time and you're not quite certain how to engage with us at Providence and really who we're about, uh, these pathway, um, 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 they are absolutely helpful to you. It's just a very brief thing. There's four of them, uh, uh, one every week, um, and uh, next week will be grow. And so if you're just sitting here and you think, you know, how exactly, even during this season, can I grow in my faith and grow in my love for people within this church family? How can I go about doing that? Then that's for you. And so I hope that that will be um, used uh, by you. It's so helpful to all of us. Um, so I'm going to pray for us as we get started, okay? Father, we come to your word, and we believe that when we do so, that we come to a word that is different than any other word. You know, and we know that, God, we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from you. Our life depends upon it. God, our hope, our marriages, our friendships, our endurance in school, our, our vision for life, our patience with people, our joy within our own heart, our fight against anxiety. God, in every way, the things that we brought into this room that we carry throughout our, our week and in our hearts, when nobody else can see, you see it all, and you know how deeply we need to hear from you. And we want to hear from you. And so I pray that you would use this time to open our eyes and help us to see incredible things within your word. And in particular, would you help us to see the kind of life that's available because of Jesus Christ? We pray all of this in his perfect name. Amen. You know, it's interesting. I'm now 47 years old. And if you haven't come to one of these moments, I promise you, you will. But every one of us at some point in our life, we come to a day or to a moment or to a trial and some kind of experience where we're caught between importance and inability. And what I mean by that is this, is that there are some times when our basic fight, our basic level of patience and endurance, it's enough. Our self-control, it's enough. There's some temptation that, frankly, is just not very hard for me to fight. And same with you. Not all temptation seizes all of us in the same way. But then there are those times in our life where let's just say that this side over here is, is, uh, is importance, and this rock over here is ability, personal ability. And we get into these moments where perhaps it's your own reputation, that you, there's this particular sin in your life, there's this temptation that it just, it just has you by the neck, it grabs you all the time. And, 
And you have proven over and over again that you don't have the resources in your own power in order to fight it off. But the scary thing, maybe you get to a point in your life to where that temptation is at the place to where you know you're about to bring shame to yourself or to your family, or to your children, or to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you look at the importance of what you're seeking to fight and why you're seeking to fight. And then you look in the mirror and you see an inability in the resources of your own flesh. For some of us, it may be a job. Or maybe you have a role within your job where there is something that needs to take place. Maybe you need to acquire another company or maybe there's a merger or a a, a sale that needs to be met in order for the company to stay afloat, in order to even continue to provide for the various employees. And suddenly you have this really important task and yet you look in the mirror and you find tremendous insecurity in your ability to pull it off. Or maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your marriage or your parenting where you look at the significance of your marriage or the significance of your children and how you want them to grow and to know the Lord and to be responsible and to be people of character and to be honest. And yet you look in the mirror and sometimes you just look at your own life and you go, man, I continue to prove that I do not have the ability by myself that is proportionate to the importance of this task. I remember a long time ago, I was, um, our kids, they were all little. We have three sons and they were all little guys at the time. And there was one particular night, if, if, if you're a parent, you have these memories and, and, and they kind of haunt you. They do me. Uh, those moments when I failed as a dad, right? Now, in this case, my failure was I, I left them. They're little guys, but I left them that night at bedtime in their beds with an absolute certainty that I was angry with them. And in the moment, they were not a blessing to me. They were a burden. They knew it from my, from my volume. They knew it from my facial expressions. I'm disgusted with you and I'm tired of you. And I, and I had said goodnight and I left the room and I closed the door. And I remember their little faces and I thought I just crushed them. And I remember sitting down at a step right next to the door. And I put my my hands over my face and, and I said, I said, God, I just don't have what it takes to be able to parent these guys in a way that they need. I don't know if you've ever been there. If you haven't, I promise you the day is coming. In some area of your life, you're going to find something that's so important and you're going to look at yourself and you say, I just don't have the wisdom. I don't have the compassion. I don't have the mercy. I don't have, I don't have the strength. I don't have the endurance in order of what's needed is proportionate to the importance of what you're seeking to give yourself to. It's interesting that when we get there, Jesus looks at us in the face and he says, I want you to know something. It is absolutely true. You don't have the goods, but I do. John chapter 15, verse 5, he says why that's so important. He says, you know what? I am the vine, and you are the branches, and whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, it's true, you can do nothing. The book of Colossians is an exclamation of chapter 15, verse 5. It's showing us how to connect to Christ, how to be rooted in Christ so that we can draw from his resources. We looked last week at this idea that when a seed sprouts, what happens is it sends a taproot down into the groove, the, the, the um, soil in the ground. And, and then what takes place is this. This is so important, right? The seed, if it's living, it has a taproot. It goes down. And why that's so important is because this taproot then is, becomes the dominant central root from which all other roots will sprout. 
In other words, we don't just drink from this one. Now, there's lots of different ways that a, that a tree drinks water. And yet all of those other ways, they're all contingent. They're all dependent upon the taproot. But when it comes to spiritual life, your relationship with God, you need to understand what we looked at last week is the taproot is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But from that taproot comes and forms numerous strength-giving, life-giving roots that feed our soul. And what Paul wanted for the Colossian church is for them to be rooted. And we looked last week just briefly. I'm not going to do this every week, just twice, in case you missed it last time. Just a little history about why we have this letter and who are these people. There's a guy named Paul. He's a religious guy. He's trying to earn his way to heaven. And so when Jesus came, he's resistant to Jesus. And then when Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples start preaching that all you have to do, that you can't earn your way to God. You have to trust in Jesus Christ Otherwise, you'll spend forever separated from him. He was resistant to that because he was in first place when it came to religion, earning your way. He thought he was ahead of everybody else. And suddenly Jesus confronts him personally on a road, opens his eyes. He trusts in Jesus. And now all of a sudden he has to tell people. And so he eventually ends up in a city called Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel there. And there in Ephesus, there's a man, his name is Epaphras. And Epaphras hears the gospel and he's like, I believe he trusts. And then he says, I got this hometown with all my friends and family. I got all these people back in Colossae who have never heard the good news that they can be forgiven. I've got to go tell them. And so he goes from Ephesus to Colossae. He tells them the gospel. People believe and a church is formed. Years pass. And now Paul, who's been persistent to preach of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He's found himself once again in prison, where we believe is Rome, all the way up here. And the church has a problem, so much so that Epaphras is deeply concerned. And the problem is this town called Colossae, just like every other town and city in the Roman Empire, is that people began traveling on all the roads and moving into Colossae and bringing with them all of their language and culture and religion and faith. So we're going to find when we get to chapter two, what happens is the people come to Epaphras and they say, look, we are all over Jesus. We are Jesus people. We believe in Jesus. But here's the deal. Everyone in our street thinks that we're so narrow minded. Just this only Jesus. And you have all these people and they have spiritual life and they pray to their God and they do other things. And some of the things that they do, it's really appealing. It's clear that they love God and they love their wife and they love their children. And so what we want to do is this, is what do you think about one like Jesus plus? We'll call it a Jesus plus gospel. And that is that when we want to hold fast to Jesus, but they probably have some stuff that we could utilize to grow in our faith. And in doing so, we would be a little bit more inclusive in our neighborhoods. And Epaphras is so concerned that he goes all the way to wherever Paul is. We believe he's in Rome to consult. And Paul, he writes them a letter. Now, last week I made an error, I believe, and that is that I told you that Epaphras brought that letter back to the church. I don't know if that's the case. In fact, I don't believe it is. When we get to chapter four, we're going to find that there was two other men who probably took the letter back to them. And you say, well, why does it matter? He's just a courier. It doesn't matter. And this is true, but here's the deal. When I teach 
If I find out that I'm wrong, I want to tell you that I'm wrong because it matters. So the second thing is this, why it matters is if it's true that it wasn't Epaphras, but it was actually two other believing men who actually brought the letter back to the church, it proves the interdependence of the Christian faith and how we need one another, how a pastor would go all the way to Rome, perhaps, in order to talk to Paul, and then two other people, maybe who have never been to Colossae, don't even know these people, would make a trek that's over a thousand miles in order to get them a letter so that they would grow. This is the importance of the family of faith. And what we're told is this, is that when Paul, this is what we looked at last week, is that when Epaphras came and he told what was happening, the first thing he said is, man, these are genuine believers. God has totally got a hold of them. And he, he says, in fact, I've heard about your faith and your hope and your love. And so notice what he says then in verse nine. He says, and so from the day we heard, meaning of your faith, your hope and your love, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what he's talking about is this, is that when we are connected to Jesus Christ, Christ provides some pretty amazing things. The first of which is he provides freedom to draw near to him. I know some of us, we love to receive a gift. And one of the gifts that you've received is prayer. And what Paul did is he utilized the gift that the vast majority of believers around the world, they failed to capitalize. In fact, for the vast majority of believers around the world, we tend to leave this gift in the gift box. Here he is in prison. He could be complaining about his circumstances. He could be bitter. Instead, what do we find him doing? Look what it says in verse 9. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's taken that gift out of the box and he's utilizing it in order to draw near. You see the gospel, the taproot of the gospel, one of the roots that grows off of it, that feeds our soul is the ability to have freedom to call upon the Lord at any time, at any moment and receive help and grace and mercy in our time of need. You see, to pray, though, without ceasing, we need to know what that means. That means that it can only, I got to quit my job and I got to leave all my relationships because I can't quit praying. That's not what he means. To pray without ceasing simply means to immediately relate to God, whatever is before us. You're thinking about it. You're seeing it. You're hearing it. You're bringing the Lord into the equation. You're considering his nearness, his presence. So let's just say that you're in traffic. We've all been in traffic. Different things can come out of us, right? Our tank of resources, it tends to draw deep down with what's within us. And so if there's impatience or anger, stuff comes out of our mouth, stuff comes into our mind, and all of a sudden we're agitated. But in this moment, what does that mean? It means this. If we're being unceasing in our prayers, what it means is that we say, God, in this moment, my time is your time. And not only that, but all these people that are so inconvenient-seeming right now, they've all been created in your image with a soul that's going to live forever in either heaven or hell. And you see all of these people. And now all of a sudden what's happening is that you have, you have brought the Lord, if I can say it that way. He's already there, but like 
into your mind. You've, you've brought him into the equation to where now you can process information in a different way. Well, let's just say that you have little kids and you have like your sixth soccer game on a Saturday, right? This is the last one. And they're like, look, man, they're just running around. They're kicking the ball. And it's like, just, you know, you're doing it again. Now, if we're praying without ceasing, like Paul said, what that means is that we're not over in these trees on a little mat. We're kneeling down before the Lord. No, it says that we're standing there. We're rooting for our kids. And while we're doing, we're praying for them, for the other kids around them. You see this taking place in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter one, we're told that, the, that this man who was a Jewish man who was taken into exile and he became the cupbearer of the king of Persia, one of the most powerful men in the whole world. He hears in chapter one that the city and the walls of Jerusalem have been ruined. And so he's downcast. He's sad about it. So much so that when you get to chapter two, the king notices. And so the king, notice what he says. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? I see there's a problem. You need something. What do you want? And notice what it says. So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king. And so it's like, it's like a sandwich, right? He's like, he's in a context. There's an actual king, a man of unbelievable power right in front of him who asked him a question. And before he answers he just says a little prayer in his mind. I said, God, would you help me to answer quickly right now? God, would you give me wisdom? You can do this in a business meeting. You can do it at a board meeting. You can do it in your marriage. You can do it. You send your kids to the room and all of a sudden you're going in there in order to sort things out while you're walking. God, help me to have patience. Help me to have love as I'm moving. You're saturating your life with God with his presence and with his promises. This is what's available. And not only does this give you power, but let me tell you something, it also gives Jesus joy. Because very similar to the joy that we feel when someone enjoys a gift that we've worked so hard to provide, so Jesus delights when we pray because it was his work on the cross that tore the temple curtain in two that separated us from God, giving access to all who believes in him. You see, this is the hope that we have. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 tells us the significance. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So providence, let's learn to pray when we need help. Let's let our first response not be complaining and arguing and bitterness and rage what if we just say, God, I need your help right now. You see, if Christ is your savior and the gospel is your tapper, then you can draw near to the Lord and you can do it with words. You can do it silently. Romans chapter eight says that sometimes if life beats you down so badly and you literally cannot even form words because the emotions are so intense, you cannot find a word in order to wrap around that emotion to give it to the Lord. And the only thing you can do is groan, just oh, God. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit takes our groanings, forms them into words, and brings them to God for us. He just wants us to look to him, to recognize that he's here. His arms are wide open to you, so you can come often, and you can come messy and weary, and you can come without pretense, and you can come without a third-party priest, because Jesus is our great high priest. Let's not leave prayer in the gift box. The second thing we see is that Christ provides knowledge of his will. When we're connected to Jesus Christ, he provides knowledge of his 
will. And this becomes so important. I don't know if you know this, but the the Bible actually teaches that he has a will for your life. That word will can be translated a want, sometimes even a wish, a plan, where he looks at your life and he says, you know, I gave you gifts, I've given you abilities, I've given you experiences, and these are the things, these are the relationships. Here's the task that I have for you. This is, this is the path that I have for you. He has a will. And Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says that this will for your life, he uses three words to describe it. Good, pleasing, perfect. Good in the Bible doesn't mean not bad. It means morally good. It's pleasing to him. Not only good, it's pleasing, pleasing to you. It's a good will. So it's, it's, it's pleasant. And then the third thing he says is perfect. And what that means is that your life doesn't become perfect. The word perfect in the scriptures typically means complete. What that means is this, is that God doesn't have a will for like your first three years of life, but then everything after that, you're on your own. No, he has a will for your whole life. From the day you get here to the day you leave here. He has a plan. And you see, when you know what that plan is and you're yielded to the Lord and you know that that's the kind of plan that if you walk in that plan that you are assuredly going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you know what that will is and you're walking in it. What happens is it provides tremendous strength and courage and fortitude and endurance and patience in our life to be able to do some of the most difficult things that we are asked to do. And so notice what Paul prays. He says, when I pray for you, this is what I'm asking, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The word filled, it means completely engulfed. When we pour a glass of milk, we start and all of a sudden it's starting to fill a little bit more and a little bit more. goes. And if we get all the way to the top, then we say, you know what? The glass has been engulfed in milk, which means you can't add anything else. There's no room for anything else. And this is what he's praying. He's saying, I want you to be engulfed. This can take place right here. This cup can take place in our heart. We see this in John chapter 6. I'm sorry, in uh, John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, this is what's happening. I'm going to leave the earth. I'm going to sin. I'm going to go to heaven. And then we're going to send the Holy Spirit back to you. He's going to live within you. And suddenly his disciples are so distraught that Jesus is going to leave them. And so notice what he says to them. And he says, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has engulfed your heart. In this moment right now, you're not listening to anything else that I can teach you. And the reason is because your heart is so full, nothing else will fit. And so when Paul prays this, what he's praying is this. He's praying that the holes, the inadequacies of our knowledge of God's will for our life be increasingly eliminated so that we would live like Jesus. You remember how Jesus lived? John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, my father. We, you find that Jesus was just constrained and he knew the will of God his entire life. The end, he's in a garden. He says, I want this cup to pass. He goes, but not my will, but your will be done. When people ask him, hey, how do we pray? He said, I'll tell you this, how you pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He's teaching us to be saturated with his will. He wants us to know, but here's the deal. You cannot be engulfed with the knowledge of his will or by his will, unless you know exactly what that will is. So what I want to do is spend just a few moments and talk about how do we identify God's will for our life? That seems like a really practical thing to do, doesn't it? 
There's like three of us who are probably interested in that. How do we know God's will for our life? There's four categories that become critically important to identifying God's will for your life. And all of them are needed. All of them are needed. And so pay attention to all four of them. The first one you need is desire. You don't normally think about desire. You have to want to know the will of God. You say, well, show me. I'll show you. Watch. Look what it says in John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this, is that if you genuinely want to know the will of God, then there is a pathway for you to know the God. And when you hear the will of God, you'll go, that's from God. But here's the deal. There's a lot of people over the years that I've talked to about the will of God. They come in and like, well, this is the situation that I'm in. I'd love to have some advice about what the Bible might say to it. And all of a sudden you reveal some of the scriptures that would be pertinent to their situation that are directly applied within the pages of scripture. And sometimes what happens is this. What we find in that moment is that what we really want is for God's will to agree with our will for our life. And when it doesn't, we say, no, I'm going to do my thing. If you hear God's will for your life and it confronts your will for your life, and in doing so, you choose your will for your life, you will not know God's will for your life. You have to say, I want your will more than I want you to agree with my will for my life. In other words, you have to hold your desires, aspirations with an open hand and say, God, if this is your will for my life, what I want so badly, then just confirm it. But if it's not, would you take it out and would you put your will in my hand? I trust you that much. So ask yourself, would you rather have his will for your life or would you rather him just simply confirm your will for your life? It's a big difference. The second thing we need is a source. Where are we going to look for God's will? And the source is the Bible. The moral quality of any behavior is determined from the pages of Scripture because the pages of Scripture is the word of our maker. We live in his world. We're not asking him to give advice in our world. We're saying, how do I live in your world? And so the only way is the pages of Scripture, And what I've found is over these 30-some years of walking with the Lord is that there's two kinds of decisions. There's right and wrong decisions, and there's right and left decisions. Okay, Right and wrong decisions is like, is this sin or is this righteousness? It's one or the other. And this is what I've found. You open up the pages of Scripture, when it comes to sin or righteousness, he leaves no doubt. Should I rob a bank, Lord? Thou shall not steal. It's, it's very clear, very direct. Should I bow down before this piece of wood or stone and worship it? You shall have no other gods before me. It, 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 and so when it's right and wrong decisions, he doesn't want us guessing what his will is about anything. And so he puts it directly within pages and words. Words have meaning. So you look at the words and you don't have to go, well, that was that. What has he said? But then there's right and right and left decisions. In other words, we get in those situations like, okay, should I marry this person? We're dating this person. We've been dating for a while. And here's some of the challenges and here's the good things. And so 
Should I turn right or should I turn left? Should I marry this person or not? And what you're not going to find within the scripture is a verse that says, you should marry Tim, right? Or you, like, that's not going to be there, direct. So what you find, though, within scripture is indirect instruction. And this is what I mean by that. Within the pages of scripture, there's direct instruction for every believer where he says, it is God's will that you be sanctified, meaning that your life becomes more like Jesus. He says, it is his will for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, that you would bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, it is his will for us in Jesus Christ, for us to submit one to another and to authorities in our life. Now, those are just three. Let's just work with those three. So now all of a sudden you're dating someone. You're like, should I marry this person? Right? Well, there's other verses that would help us with that. There's one that says, do not be unequally yoked, right? Which means don't marry somebody who's unequally yoked, who has a faith that's different than your faith when it comes to who, you're, who, you, who you worship. But let's just say that this person is a believer and you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden you're like, should I marry them? Well, now all of a sudden these other instructions, they're going to give you information. And this is how. When you're with this person that you care so much about, You ask the question, when I'm with this person, do they propel me towards wanting to be like Jesus? Does this relationship push me towards Christ? Does this relationship, when I'm with this person, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is is this relationship like water on the fire? And so that when I'm with them, I'm not very joyful and we fight a lot and there's not a lot of patience and there's no self-control. There's no gentleness where there's a lot of friction, but we love each other. And then submit. He says, you got to submit one to another. Do you trust this person and their relationship with the Lord enough that if they came to you and they said, God has said that we need to move, or God has said that we need to do this, that you trust their relationship enough to be willing to follow them? If you want to marry somebody, and in all of those cases, you go, you know, it doesn't help me to become like Jesus Christ. It doesn't help me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I have no desire to submit to this person whatsoever because I doubt them. I don't even think they read the Bible. I don't, don't marry them. And now all of a sudden, you see God is directing. He's directing through his, with his word, right and wrong and right and left. But all of us need confirmation and help with that. So the third thing is the spirit, the Holy Spirit that God gives to live within our heart because of the gospel. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see how the Holy Spirit does it? He doesn't remind us of another book, another person's teaching. No, the Holy Spirit reminds us of things that are within the Bible that Jesus said and things we've already learned from the scriptures. And then sometimes, simply because we, it's sometimes just really nice to have somebody, you can hear their voice. The fourth is community. And that's where you surround yourself with a few friends. And you know the quality of your friends this way. They don't support your folly. They remind you of truth. And you, and you ask and you go, look, I just want you to... I want to share, here's my decision. This is what's in front of me. Is there anything that you've learned over the years from the scriptures that you might want to 
like just identify any questions or you know, like, and all of a sudden maybe they're remembering a different story or different verses that might add color, right? To help you understand what his will is for your life. You see, without knowledge of his word, and you notice that all of these, they point directly to the source. The spirit's reminding us of the source. The community is reminding us of the source, which is the scripture. Our desire is God, we're going to look at your word and and what we find, we're going to want more than whatever it is that we want. The word becomes absolutely critical. And therefore, without knowledge of his word, ritualism or emotionalism always become the criteria of truth. What we have always done or what makes me feel the most. But let me tell you something, simply because it's been done before or simply because it elicits an enormous amount of emotions does not mean it's his will for your life. Hosea 4, 6, Jesus or God looked at his people and he said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so when Paul's praying, if you remember he says that you don't have to be destroyed. And this is why, because God's word reveals God's will. And notice what he says. And what it does is it issues wisdom and understanding. Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that I love to find these three words. They're like running buddies. Every once in a while, you find one that says, you know, what? you guys can't run with me today. I want to run by myself. But most of the time you find one of them running, you find the other two also. They're always together. And yet they're different. Knowledge is simply knowing what God's word says. Understanding is understanding or comprehending how it works. But wisdom is the ability to have, it's to apply it to my my life, to my relationships. And this is what happens when you know his will from his word. It gives you understanding to life, but it also gives you wisdom to know how to apply it to life. And so let me encourage you to prioritize time in God's word. I want you to know you cannot know the will of God if you live with a closed Bible. That's why Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. Your mind. You need to know what he has to say to you. The third thing that we find that Jesus does and provides for us when we're connected to him last is this, is it provides power to live worthy of his name. It provides power to live worthy of his name. You know, every single day, somebody seems to be is exposed for living unworthy of their position or their chair. What this does is it produces shame, sometimes tremendous shame. And the fact that we have really old statues that depict the emotion and the feeling of shame, it proves that shame has long been part of human experience. You know, when we cry out, that person lived unworthily, what we're saying is that the nobility of what that person was connected to should have motivated and constrained him not to bring that point of connection into disgrace. Now, here's the hope. Listen to me. As Christians, we are connected to Jesus Christ. Therefore, surely nobody ever has suffered more abuse by association than Jesus. Because every time a believer sins and shames himself, there is a direct correlation to only one other person. And that one other person is connected to every one of us. And his name is Jesus. You see, it is Jesus Christ who supplies the dignity of that connection, but it's also Jesus that supplies 
the power to live worthily of him. And that's why it says in knowing his will, this is going to happen. Notice what he says. He goes, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is who, this is, this is, this is why it's so important. We're seeking to live worthy of the Lord. And then just like Paul always does, he just got a, he just got a love for participles, right? And a participle is usually a verb with an ing that shows us how to do the main verb. In other words, in this case, what he's doing is this. What would it look like if our lives actually, genuinely, and consistently were lived worthily of Jesus Christ? And he talks about four of them. He says, one of the things you're going to see is you're going to see that when you connect to Christ, that you're able to bear fruit in every good work. You're going to see love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Not always, but you'll see it consistently and persistently in your life. Not only that, you'll be increasing in the knowledge of God. You'll find that over time, as you're walking in the will of the Lord, you'll find that you know him a little bit more. You know his heart. You know how he would respond. Not only that, when we're connected to him, we're strengthened. And I want you to notice what he says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. In other words, we're drawing from his strength. Why? For all endurance and patience with joy. Now, here's the thing. This is amazing. His strength comes to those people. Hear this. So that we would be people that when difficult situations and circumstances arise, that people will look at our life and go, you know, it's just amazing to me. Some of the most challenging things can happen. And yet that person is so patient, not only patient, but joyfully patient, like happy while they're being patient. And not only that, but they're even happy when they're enduring. The strength to endure. You know what that means? That when you're connected to Jesus Christ and that gospel taproot, that you develop a reputation over time of not being a butterfly that lands here and then lands here and then lands here. No, you have staying power. Makes a big difference when people want to be in a relationship with you. If you have endurance. When you can finish a task. You can start something and see it all the way through. It requires strength that you don't have, but he says he strengthens us. But not only that, the last thing is we find that something, something becomes a dominant trait that flows out of our mouth. And that is we start to give thanks. You should ask yourself something. The people who were closest to, they, would they be convinced that the dominant things that flow out of your mouth is just an absolute astonishment that so many people, especially God, brings good things into your life. They're just always saying thank you. He goes, this is how we live worthily of the Lord. Jesus enables all of these evidence. And so let me encourage you to consider his worth and examine your life. Do you know why it's possible? I mean, you should examine your life, right? Is there fruit in your life? Do you see patience, endurance, thanksgiving? Are these things really there? This is what he says. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to live worthily of me. This is, this is the... This is the fruit that comes from the strength that I provide. And do you know how all of this is even possible? Well, this is how he finishes. Notice these amazing words. The reason all this is possible is because Jesus has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. That means that when Jesus Christ died on his cross and rose from the dead, he invited people to believe The gospel of John says that all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God means adopted family members. They become heirs and heirs receive an inheritance, a new kingdom. 
Then he even goes and he talks about that kingdom. He goes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There are some of you right now, you say, you know what? I live in a dark kingdom. Sin and temptation rule. God is far from me. And you feel hopeless. You can't get out of it. You can't get out of it without Jesus. And that's what he's saying. You know what Jesus does? He not only delivers us from the chains of a kingdom of darkness, but he also transfers our citizenship to a new kingdom. And it's the kingdom of his beloved son. And do you know what that son has done for each one of us who have trusted him? He's redeemed and forgiven us. Redeemed means that he paid the price. Because of our sin, we have a moral debt before God we cannot pay, and therefore we are locked. We are chained. We are bound. The door does not open until the debt is paid. And Jesus said that when we trust in him, his work, his righteousness is credited to our account. We're redeemed. But not only that, the sin in our life and the things that cause us such shame and guilt. He says that he sends them away. That's what forgiveness means. It means to send away. It's not just forget. It's send away. You have it and now you don't. He forgives you of all of your sin. You know, we get to do something this morning. We do it once a month. We celebrate these truths with the Lord's Supper. But I know that there are some of you who have never trusted Christ. And so before we do that, what I want to do is give you an opportunity. So would you bow your heads with me wherever you're at in this room or at home? And for those of you who have already trusted Christ, you've already been transferred, you've already been delivered, you've already been redeemed and forgiven, don't you thank God that he's done that in your life? And maybe pray for the people around you who may be considering trusting Christ. But if you have never trusted Christ and yet you believe in your heart that you need to, that he is the son of God, that he did die and rise again, then you can pray something like this to God. Father, I admit that I have a need. I admit that I'm a sinner and I admit that I cannot earn my way to you. I admit that I experience guilt and shame for things that I've thought and done. And I look at my life and I admit that I do not have the power to stop from doing the very things that cause that shame and that guilt in my past. But I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he came to this earth. I believe he died on a cross for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And I confess him, Lord. Lord of my life and Lord of the world. And I ask that you would forgive me and save me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.